Welcome to the Galileo Ventures podcast with myself and... Hugh. Thanks very much, Hugh. This is our fourth episode. Apologies for it being slightly delayed since our last time we did it. I believe we recorded a couple of months ago. Um, But we'll talk about why it's been a delay. As a reminder, Galileo Ventures podcast is the place to get your early stage tech news and unfiltered views from two seed VCs, namely us two. Um, And we are also... News and views. News and views is our new tagline. Let me know if you like this tagline. And um, we are on our fourth episode, as I mentioned before, and we're super excited to jump into it. Today, we're going to talk about some local news, some global news. We're going to roast one deck and we've got one founder question. Because it is technically a public holiday for Hugh, we're going to do a super short episode as well. So we're going to ram through this and get through. It's going to be hot fire questions and answers. But (laughs) yeah, I'm excited. But first, before we dive into it, over the past seven weeks, I've visited London, New York, San Francisco, meeting investors, operators, and founders. It's been a bit of a whirlwind trip. Uh, I think I've met over 30 people officially, unofficially, double that at least. Um, and of course, we met people at the forefront of AI and finance and venture investing. Hugh, I'm going to flip it over to you. What questions do you have for me about the last seven? How much do you love the degree to which I kept the fund running while you were off gallivanting <laughs> around internationally? That's my first question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in serious, I think, I, I think though, I think the question that was on everyone's lips as soon as you arrived, uh, arrived back, of course, was how was Burning Man? Those who, James, had sort of somewhat slipped around the edges of mentioning that one, but of course attended the now infamous Mud Man. Uh, how was the experience? Uh, experience was great. Uh, it was extremely muddy. Yeah, so much less dust than normal, I'm told, but a lot, le- lot more mud. Uh, it was also my first Burning Man experience. So before we pile in on the trope of VCs going to Burning Man, I, it's my first time. Um, that's so. what it is to be a pre-seed investor. That is you correct. Know, yeah. End of fund one. That's right. <laughs> is when you attend your first Burning Man. Apparently. I haven't attended one yet. So, you know, still in my future. Exactly. But uh, no, it was really good. It was a fantastic experience. And I recommend everyone to at least try it once if you can manage to get yourself over there. Did you find, I mean, I mean as, a, as a sort of, I guess, event, I'll call it an event for want of a better term, um, certainly not a conference. Uh, did you find that sort of like you noticed that tech skew? Because I think one of the critiques of it has been that it sort of shifted away, I guess, from maybe the art sort of oriented creative element and increasingly into tech over the last, I'd say, 10 years, like not saying very recently. Um, did you sort of see that tech undercurrent really running through it? Or do you find that, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, the art and the creativity was still at the forefront? No, the art and creativity is still at the forefront. I didn't, I didn't meet any tech bros that you constantly hear about i uh admittedly in our camp we obviously had a lot of um engineers uh but none of them necessarily in tech some of them are doing all sorts of bizarre things so i think in our area was very diverse i was struck by the diversity of people there uh Mm. but like if you look at the census they do a census of 40 percent of them 40 percent of attendees this year were californians so by nature of them being Californians, a lot of them will be in tech, obviously. And then I think there's the other side, which is it's expensive to go to sort of get all your supplies and be in a desert for a week. So so there's a bias towards, obviously. Caravan. Yeah. <laughs> Camping. I'd rather die. I did see all the TikToks of all of the various rental companies like sharing, you know, TikTok walkthroughs of the return vans and, the you know, the varying quality of 
Correct. people managed to somehow get rid of the dust and or mud. Correct. Well, um, I, I called it the annual U-Haul convention because everyone hires. So in, in America, there's a there's a brand called U-Haul, which is a very, very famous, you know, rent a, rent a truck or, truck. or, or storage uh, trailer. And it's just all over America. Um, it's an interesting family-run company, apparently. There's a very uh, 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 interesting background into how it became so big, but it's it's the dominant player. And so everywhere around, you know, you see that. But but no, it was, it was a diverse crowd, very interesting. Um, this year, the art was also incredible, as it is usually is. Uh, and uh, it's just a pity that it started raining because once it starts raining, you can't do anything. you got to just sort of stay in your camp. Um, okay, so now talking about real topics. Mm. Um you know, obviously spent some time in the tech ecosystem, really interesting times for that to be the case, both obviously the explosion of AI and, you know, the, the concerns around, you know, the macroeconomic market, everything else. What, I guess, really were the sort of thematics that you think really came out, um, particularly given that you visited both the US and the UK uh, ecosystems? So I think the thematics that came out for me were threefold. One, AI is still top of everyone's lips. It is very much... Uh, permeating itself through every sector. So every single investor is thinking how it applies to the areas that they're interested in. The general mood is very upbeat um, from an AI investor or just general investor perspective. And in particular, I think what I was trying to work out was where we, where's the puck going in AI? What do we see is going to be on the horizon? And there's a few things that are coming through there, but the main thematic that a lot of investors are sort of investing in right now is trust and safety. Um, and, and what that means is, you know, there's been a wave of investments in the infrastructure piece. So all of the software that you use to run and train a model, and that's like the things that OpenAI will buy for their engineers. And so that's been done a lot. Now we're looking beyond that, which is how do we ensure uh, reliable outputs that are also, you know, aligned and safe. And, you, and, and the data governance aspect too is becoming a bigger issue. So without going into too much detail into that, uh, trust and safety is a big thematic for big investors. Uh, and uh, the other one is around critical technologies as well. So, for example, in the UK, they've now got a national mission for AI and for space, where they've got a stated mission. I think in the UK, from memory, it's about 12, 10% of the total global space market they want to own in the UK. And so the government is now investing heavily. There's a lot of funds that have popped up and it's a bit of a strategic mission. One of the things that was striking for me was like, where is our strategic mission in Australia? Like, can't we just dig things up out of the ground and sell them to the Chinese? <laughs> yeah, more of that. <laughs> uh, it's worked so far for us, right? This Surely, is true. What happened? What worked yesterday will always work tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Just make it, you know, uh, titanium or uh, lithium. Lithium—that's the word I'm looking for. You know. But no, I, I think so. So it struck me interestingly that Australia seems to not necessarily have that same national conversation about what what that means for us. But equally in the UK, they do. And, and you could see OpenAI has set up offices there. There's a lot of US investors now over there. And the UK has a big bio and life sector, which is going really well, despite the global downturn. So, so I think that was kind of intriguing to add some color. Um, the other aspect that I thought was really interesting was like if you're doing growth rounds, so your Series A, B plus, it is really tough. It is super tough. So, and, and I guess yeah. like to sort of piggyback off the back of that in the previous comment, like what what do you think? What were those vibes like? You know, like obviously if you were there you know, as you were a couple of years ago, you know everything was on the up and up. You know nothing could go wrong. Um, you know there, there was money everywhere. 
like what do you think you know the vibes were really like and and where were the parts that you were maybe surprised by so what i was surprised by was the real uh, was sort of the unknown aspect of what makes a good investment now and what makes a bad investment like everyone had their own different views on this and the the best quote i can remember is one of the top investors i spoke with you know very very big investor very prominent were like if you're a company that's doing fine you're probably not going to raise money and so and time and time again we're seeing this and i've got lots of stories from this you know i've got four million arr i'm growing consistently year on year can I raise a series B or C? And the answer is no, you can't because no one wants to give you the multiples anymore. And if you're unlucky enough to raise in 2021 on very high multiples, good luck trying to raise on that now. And so what's happening right now in the US at least much more than over here is a lot of flat rounds, a lot of existing investors leading these rounds, but then all the other investors are sitting there and going, this is going to go nowhere because we're never going to give them a round they want. And so you've kind of got this weird cohort of businesses that are trying to grow into their valuations. And it's very unclear if they will, because it's going to take many years to do that. Um, and so that's the what I'd call the have-nots. And then you've got the, the haves, which are on very little amount of ARR, growing very fast for whatever reason, sometimes AI-linked, sometimes not. And they're able to raise these crazy rounds, which is what we're seeing in the press sometimes when it's reported. And so I think there's no consensus on what is a good area to invest in right now. But in the US and UK, it's a bit different in terms of what they're interested in. But the, the general mood is, you know, you need to be very careful about the multiples you're getting on your revenue now because the public markets are obviously not going to reward you just for being pure software company. And, and what were the views, I guess, on, you know, from overseas investors on the Australian market? Um, you know, obviously, they were willing to take a meeting with you. Um, but, you know, what was kind of the prevailing, again, I guess, vibes or, you know, impression of what the Australian startup and ecosystem really looked like? The number one impression is, what's Australia? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, but to be a little bit more positive, the ones that actually a little bit more globally orientated, I think Australia is on the up and up. And so everyone goes, oh, Australia, Atlassian, Canva. Maybe some will then, you know, rattle off a few other billion-dollar companies. But by and large, everyone knows about Canva. Everyone thinks Canva is a great, great company, even now with, with, with the global sort of cool-down in, in, in tech multiples and, and public markets. So that's very positive for Australia. So that's, that's helping us. What I'm big on now is promoting Australia as a really good destination for international funds to come and invest, even at the early stage. And it is true. It is absolutely true. And so the way to think about it is in the US, there are so many competitors doing the exact same thing. Uh, and the valuations at seed and pre-seed are pretty high now. So the bad thing in the US is, you know, you can, you can yes, yeah, founders think it's great to get a 20, 30 mil val at seed. But then like, how do you follow that, that up in series A where no one's going to give you a multiple of like 20, 30, 40x multiple, right? So like there's a, there's like a cognitive dissonance happening right now. But now the investors are going, hey, what about Australia? And, and I guess my pitch is I think Australia is the next Israel in so far that it's going to grow very, very big. Uh, we, are, we are sort of about half the size, maybe a bit less than 40% you know, of the size of Israel in terms of total venture capital invested on an annual basis right now. So we are definitely getting up there. But I think Australia is going to get a lot more prominent in the next few years, especially if the Canva IPO goes very well. 
very exciting. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to seeing how that prediction plays out. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> and I guess, uh, you know, speaking of speaking of IPOs and, and news, I mean, that's a, that's a really difficult transition to make. Um, why don't we talk about uh, the news that's been hitting the market, hitting the world and Australia in the last couple of weeks? Fantastic. All right. Well, let's go into news. Thanks very much, Hugh, for that mini interview. On to local news. This week, we thought we would dive into something that we announced on our socials, which is we are launching a new program for women in STEM, and we wanted to bring on our own head of platform, Ludi, to have a chat about the program. And so, here to introduce it is Ludi. Welcome, Ludi. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, James and Hugh. Um, So, I'm super proud to announce that we've launched Jupiter. Uh, So Jupiter is a program aimed to support STEM women become effective startup leaders um, as founders, builders, and operators. Um, So just a quick reminder on what STEM stands for in case you've been living under a rock. Um, That's science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, So Jupiter was essentially created because we truly believe there is an untapped potential with STEM women as leaders in early stage um, tech companies. Um, And there simply isn't enough STEM role models, to be honest. Um, So this program really is about giving STEM women the opportunity to enter the playing field in tech on a level ground um, as their male counterparts with our no BS approach. Um, So this really is um, for STEM women to harness their strength, provide for us to provide insights into the startup landscape and connect you with um, with the tech world. Um, So what you can expect in this program um, uh, sessions on the zero to one phase of building a startup tech company, um, learning the art of fundraising and listening, to, sorry, listening into tech briefings on AI um, and ML products and any new tech um, that's happening at the moment. Um, it's also a chance to hear from leading women in STEM who have done this before, um, executive coaching on how to help you become an effective um, executive um, and all within a supportive peer-to-peer group environment so that's it great thanks Ludi. thank you uh i have a quick question which is what is your what are you Mm -hmm. most excited for about jupiter i'm really excited about um having this community of like brilliant minds um work together um and really find a community within this tech ecosystem cool all right thanks hugh do you have a question for the lady about jupiter um where can people find out more? Yeah, so if you head to galileo.ventures slash Jupiter, there's more information there. Um, and also Jupiter like the planet, the... not like the uh, Python like the notebook, planet. just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Just in case there are some, you know, STEM-oriented people who would perhaps make that mistake. Correct. Uh, and then, and then Ludi, what are the dates of the first cohort as well? Yeah, so we're currently taking in um, interest for the Tuesday, November the 7th. Uh, so our application deadline is actually at the end of October. Great. So you've got a month to apply. Go to that again, galileo.ventures forward slash Jupiter. I'll put it on the bottom It'll there. be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes as well. And if you do join us, uh, Ludi will be there to help with the first cohort um, and lead it up. And we're super excited to see the first results. Uh, if you want to find out more, you can also email us at team at galileo.ventures and Ludi will get back to you with some details. Thanks very much, Ludi, for joining awesome. us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Ludi. Thanks, guys. See ya.
on to the next story. We are going to talk about two darlings, maybe, of the local tech ecosystem. Recently announced, I think just this week, uh, the ordering apps that you would have used in any pub in Australia these days. Uh, that is me and you and Mr. Yum, the digital ordering apps. Hugh, tell me what's been happening there. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, been a very competitive market, you know, launched, I guess, into, you know, into the stratosphere almost during COVID. Um, but then, you know, subsequently, much like a lot of the rest of the market of, you know, point of sale systems and everything else into retail and hospitality, uh, been very, very competitive. And of course, the two of them have kind of been both the earlier entrants, um, but I think also the most well-funded entrants into the market. And, you know, we're, we're both, I think, very aggressively pursuing market share um, across their different domains, you know, did different, I guess, both geographies, knowing that Mr. Yum started initially in Melbourne, me and you initially started in Sydney. Um, but it did, obviously there's, you know, it's a but both national companies, to be clear. Um, and, uh, and, and the merger obviously happened uh, just very recently. And so I think, um, you know, the, the AFR had some reports on, you know, allegedly how it all sort of, I guess, worked out and panned out. Um, but I guess to ask you the question, James, you know, what do you, think, what, what do you think that means? You know, like, it's interesting that both of these companies who both had raised, I think, north of 50 million. Mr. Yum, uh, just decided- to jump in, Mr. Yum raised 100 million in its short life including 89 million led by uh, Tiger Global, which, Tiger. Is, which I met with in New York and got their view on a lot of things. And I can tell you some of their views about Australian unicorns is very interesting. Um, we didn't talk about Mr. Yum, just, uh, just to be clear, but like we did talk about some of the others. And then me and you raised 30 million in December 22, led, bo- led by Acorn Capital. Uh, it's raised in total 66 million. So 100 million and 66 million. So no, big, big amounts of money. These amounts of money. So, so it's interesting, I think, you know, and, and I guess uh, from a VC's lens, it's interesting that two of those companies who both had sort of raised similar amount, again, according to the, according to the press, you know, similar degree of uh, gross revenue running through both businesses and GMV running through both businesses. It's interesting that they, they decided to merge. So, you know, what does that kind of, I guess, tell you, James, you know, and, and what does that tell you about how you think the market, uh, what the market really looks like? What it tells me is that they've both hit a ceiling in international growth. And that's, that I think... Is, is two reasons. One, the behavior in the US is just not the same as over here. So they don't like using cash because there's a tipping culture in the US and it's very clear when you go there. In fact, I was struck by in New York the variety of clones of Mr. U, Mr. Yama and me and you, just all these terrible clones that existed that you know didn't have payments integrated in any way. So I think that all that means to me is there's a huge education piece, which means they've got to play the long tail. Um, I think it's smart for them to join up forces rather than cannibalize themselves. Uh, having said that, I don't know if that would happen in the US. I think in the US, you probably would have had more aggressive. You know, you may have seen investors be a bit more aggressive, but right now we're not in that. We're not in that market right now where where they want to do crazy growth rounds um, like you saw with SoftBank back in the day. So, so as a result, I think it's smart. Um, I think it's a bit worrying that they're not sort of growing very fast overseas, whereas in Australia, they grew very fast. And what I wonder is, what does this company look like when it's mature? Does it ever penetrate the US? Does it really just end up in the UK and maybe a bit of EU? Um, I really don't know. Um, but um, I think it's somewhat smart that they did it. And, and I'd be really interested to see what the outcome is from an investment fund perspective once it's all done and dusted and they, and they exit. Do, do you think we'll see another similar deal like this you know, in the short term, mid term, long term, like, you know, it's actually kind of rare, I guess, to see M&A at that size uh, from Australian startups, not, not so much in the US, I guess, but in Australia, you know, comparatively rare to see deals like that happen after they'd raised that amount of capital. Yeah, it's a good question. We really are in our first generation of 
what I'd call growth technology companies in Australia where we've actually got a sizable cohort. There's probably about 30, 40 of them that have raised over north of 50 million and, and maybe 20 over 100 million in the last five years. And once you're at that scale, in theory, you should be buying up a lot of companies. So I guess what surprises me is we're not seeing a lot of M&A activity at the very, very small end. So I would have expected, for example, Canva to have bought way more competitors within Australia, just purely for aqua hire reasons. And we're not seeing that at all. So I find that kind of intriguing. Um, but at that mid-level, so me and you and Mr. level, I think we will see more consolidation there. I don't think we'll necessarily see mergers, but I do, I do think we'll see someone try and buy out more of their competitors. I guess the question is, do they have the cash flow and balance sheet to do that? Or do they need to go raise external capital? And if you need to raise external capital, that's tough in this market to go and just do a buyout. But, but, I, think, but I think depending on the investors, there's definitely a, 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 a strategy to play here to kind of go consolidate um, and buy people on the cheap in this market right now, knowing that in five years time, if the market changes, you might end up with a really great global dominant player. Well, again, interesting Interesting to see how those predictions all pan out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, okay, great. Uh, we'll move on now to our next section, which is Roast My Deck. Great. I'm super excited for this deck, Hugh, uh, for our next Roast My Deck. In particular, this company is called Outread. Um, we have been following Outread for a little over, I think it's eight months now, maybe close to a year. And we've seen the founder go through a few different iterations. And so that's why I wanted to sort of revisit their latest deck, which you have not seen. They literally emailed me this last night. Great. And very interested to get your view on this. It kind of touches on a bunch of the themes which we've been talking about um, beforehand. So are you ready to dive in? Let's go. Let's do it. Slide one. Take it away, Hugh. Okay, um, so, I mean, this doesn't really tell me what they do. I'm big about, like, start with what it is that they do, right? And this team is, you know, AI-driven research, summaries of research. And it just, like, I get the piece of, like, humans are curious, it's nice, but, like, just tell me what you do. Start with what you do. You know, and I think particularly with the world of, like, you're using AI, AI is, you know, obviously on the up and up at the moment. Like, stick it in there as early as you can. Make that really obvious, nice and early, uh, would be my sort of feedback. Otherwise, you know, nice enough, nice design, you know, like the layout. I would say product. I would say brownie points on the fact that you show me the application straight away. Yeah. So obviously, I presume it's the app that they're screenshotting down there. That's nice. But yeah, I hate, I'm very I'm a for founders. I really don't like it when they use really iffy like statements like learn more, do more, be more. Like yeah. it's don't, not a marketing website. It's a deck. It's a deck, right? And you're not a big brand. No one knows who you are, and no one knows what you do. So be be upfront, be direct, and I think that that always comes across better from an investor lens. Slide, we'll jump to slide two. So slide two, team. Okay, so I mean, I, I'm not sure I love the term AI visionaries. I think visionaries is a bit of one of those like words. Um, would have been nice if the photos were a bit more consistently formatted. They're kind of almost consistently formatted, but but Drulf in the middle looks like he's like you know, five foot two and the women look like they're six foot something. Um, and that's just a cropping visual design piece, to be clear. Yeah. Um, I mean, the logo is nice, you know, sure. I'm not sure it necessarily really tells me that much. Um, it doesn't tell me if it's that they're students at RMIT or their clients or like AWS. Okay, did you work there? Did you say that you're I using AWS? they like, mean that they've worked there. 
I mean, they haven't worked at South by Southwest, right? So, like, oh, maybe, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of a bit of a strange collection. Um, sure. The accolades piece, I don't know, like, I think this doesn't really help me very much. Like, saying that you've been sponsored to visit South by and an EO event in Cape Town, which was GLC uh, last year, doesn't really say to me that, like, you can build stuff. Like, I think these, the, the best early stage slides show, like, hey, we're a team that can ship stuff. We can do things. Um, mm. And this one, I'm not sure necessarily tells me. This. It just it just sort of says, "Oh yes, look at me. I'm very smart." And, and all founders are very smart. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, really, you want to, particularly if the company has you know a, a real product in market, you want to really highlight the piece of like, "Hey, like, you know, we've built stuff together before." Like, you want to showcase that piece of how the founders know each other, how they're well connected, how long you've been working together, you know, all that kind of piece. I think really needs to be the broader focus than just a logo wall. Yep. But again, that's a bit of a point of religion. Yeah, I agree. I would recommend in this slide to say something that is sort of unique about your skills, what you've achieved. Yeah. Prove that you can ship and or have achieved something pretty cool. And I think every AI deck has people saying we're amazing AI visionaries. Well, yes. I, I, well, I don't know if they use that right? term AI visionaries. No, no they, don't, they, don't use, they don't use the term, but the whole point is like they, they all have, you know, like it's sort of like it's like it's a... You know, your startup's dead in the water if you're doing an AI startup and you have no idea about AI. Right? Sure. So it's kind of like, sure. you know, it's it's almost taken as red that if you're doing an AI company, particularly if you've shipped something, that you at least have some clue. Correct. I, what I would love uh, to know is like, have you done, contributed to a paper? Did you work on a model? Yeah. Are you ex deep what, what does this look like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, and I think research is an interesting point where I'm like, oh, okay, research is interesting. Research into ML, research is into... I don't know, like you know, biomed, like yeah. you know, what what does that you know what does that look like? Because yeah. I think again, the, the depth of experience you see out of someone who is an ML or you know computer vision, as you say, James, or some sort of you know researcher in that capacity, is very different to particularly knowing you know obviously what the company does um, from both Correct. the previous slide and sort of knowing a little bit about it. That's quite different to saying we understand the customer space, which is researchers. Correct. All right, slide three, moving on. Research okay, papers so, drive innovation is the title here. I mean, that's not one you should ever say to VCs because VCs would say researchers don't drive any innovation at all. <laughs> uh, but that's anyway, I guess, you know, deep, deep tech, deep tech. I'll allow deep tech as the ex- exception to that. I think I think the paywall thing here is a bad, is a mm. bad example to use because obviously, you know, you've got Sci-Hub and the whole process of Sci-Hub and what that means. Um, I think you can say due to, you know, challenges accessing... You know, again, I think if you're a researcher at a university, you know, it's effort to access often more so than necessarily it's not licensed. Um, technical jargon, I think, is an interesting one. Again, probably the same piece of saying, okay, sure, I can understand that from a, for example, a student's lens. But if I was a 25-year biotech researcher reading biotech papers, I live in technical jargon. You know, that's I don't need someone to strip out the technical jargon for me. In fact, I, I want the technical jargon because... The reason that jargon exists is it allows me to read and write and talk about things in shorthand or some degree of greater detail than I'd otherwise be able to do. So it's an interesting question, and, and, I, and I don't know. Like I think this stifles innovation. I'm kind of like square bracket citation needed Wikipedia style there. Um, you know, I'm not sure innovation is necessarily stifled because research papers drive them. I'd more say it's like there's a very correct, challenging signal-to-noise ratio going on. Yeah, correct. I don't, I don't think the right angle here is to... I don't think the right key point takeaway here is to say that we've got innovation stifled. I think the interesting question for me is, is there a new market for people that want to follow the latest research papers? And is that market for some reason huge? 
um, that we don't know about because that's an interesting insight that I would love to understand like, more. Yeah, I, I'd merely say like it's sort of that piece of, and it's positioning piece and things like that. And I appreciate again, it's a point of religion, but it's sort of like you look at all of those tools. Like, um, what's the uh, what's the what's the book summary one? Blinkist. Blinkist. Blinkist yeah. Um, you know, you look at all those tools like Blinkist and the whole point of them is to say like, hey, like, you know, we unlock the 80th percentile of the knowledge in, you know, 5% of the time. Um, and you could look at that in the success of saying, hey, like this, this is done for like nonfiction and, you know, nonfiction summaries and things like that have been around forever. Why aren't there good summaries of research papers? Correct. I think that's actually in some ways a bit of a more robust argument in saying, hey, look, like this is always, you know, whether it's even to the point of, you know, beyond AI, like, you know, there's like cliff notes and stuff like that, you know, all of those little study guides and stuff that are summaries of knowledge uh, and nonfiction. And, you know, then we've got technical approaches to it. But like we haven't seen that in research paper world. And obviously that, the, you know, the, the life cycle of textbooks and everything else is a long term life cycle. So it's very hard for people to do it. So I think that's that for me, I think, is actually a stronger um, argument or pitch than sort of papers are stuck behind paywalls. Yep, I agree. OK, we'll move on to the next slide. Okay, so more papers. Yeah, I mean, th this just says signal and noise. Sure. I'm not sure this is needed. <laughs> yeah. I'll move on to the next slide. So solution. Yeah, look. Okay, so yeah. this is what we find. Now, now we're talking about what we actually do. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah, yeah it's slide like five, it. though. Like, it's a bit far down for it's me. It's a bit, bit late. Yeah, I agree. This could almost be like... Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I can. Did you just, did you just start playing music? <laughs> What is going... <laughs> I think Harry is playing something on his... <laughs> I don't even know how, to, how those <laughs> things are plugged in. <laughs> you, could, you could just... Can't you just mute it? There's its off button. Oh, now I've just got the subwoofer. There we go. Okay. <laughs> what a collab. <laughs> uh, nothing like an interruption. Okay. <laughs> the solution. I've never ha heard those speakers making noise. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> anyway, I would really like to see this to start again. Um, I'd really like to see this slide, almost the first slide, right? This, this is kind of the piece of where, you know, like there's a question whether you start with the vision, but I think the vision was a bit weak. Yep. Um, whereas this is a much more clear piece of like, this is what we do, you know, AI enabled research and discovery platform. I like that. Making it accessible, understandable like that. You know, I think that's a nice piece. I'm not sure everyday people is the initial market. Um, but you know, again, that, that's a, a you know, point of religion a little bit. Um, but you know, I quite like this nice and simple. Yeah. I don't mind it. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I agree on the everyday people part. When, any, when anyone says everyday people or like, you know, for consumers, I mean, oh, so you don't know who your core customer is. That's my yeah. general view on that. All right, moving on to slide six. Find and read cutting edge summaries. So so I'll jump in this here. This looks like website copy. Yeah, I mean, I would jump in here to say you could almost bring this up a lot forward uh, to like slide two or three just to say what you do. Yeah. But I'm not too sure. Again, it's kind of a bit fluffy, right? Accelerating speed to insight by seventy five cent. Why do I want to do that? Like, who do I really want to like? Like, depends on who this is for. So I'm not too sure if I understand 
the problem solution fit in terms of who the customer is here yet. Yeah, I agree. See, and it's, again, it reads a bit more like web copy than it does really anything else. But I like the fact they've showcased the product again. Yeah. I like the fact that they've consistently showcased some degree of product through the, through the deck. Yeah. Okay, slide seven. Okay, so curation now. The, the ex-researcher in the literal researcher, not the AI researcher to be clear, in me says, curation, find articles that rank the highest. I'm like, mm, how are you ranking the articles? That's mm. a very complicated scientific problem that there's not really a solution to yet. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, this kind of says, th this doesn't really help me that much. I mean, personalization is the interesting point, I guess, mm -hmm. here. Like the one and, one and two, I'm like, yeah, you've already said you do AI-driven summaries, right? which is that. Um, and point three, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, that's an interesting question of like, how, how should these things be personalized? Is that something that, that they're doing today or is that part of the future vision? I don't know. Um, but I think that is an interesting, that, that's an interesting kind of, I guess, lens on top of it beyond just saying, oh, yes, we essentially curate and then run it through ChatGPT. Yeah. I also, I guess, are they trying to say the proprietary algorithm does these things? I guess they are saying that, right? Well, yeah, and I think I always, when people say algorithm, I'm, again, I'm always like sort of citation needed because is it an algorithm? Is it a workflow? Yeah. Is it a prompt engineering piece? Yeah. And usually, certainly our experience, I think, to date, James, has been that the proprietary stuff is essentially workflow and or prompt engineering yeah. more so than algorithm. Correct, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they've invented a new ranking algorithm for papers, that'd be great to know, for example. Which yeah. it just does not comp through in this in this situation. Slide eight. eight. All right. I actually like this slide. I do too. I like this slide because I think it's got it's a really strong illustration of the product. It's the strongest Again, slide I think to date. I think. Like we're we're eight slides in, and I reckon yeah. about four of them yeah. have just been about the product. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a bit much, I think. Um, possibly five of them have been about the product. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a strong slide. Like I think this, in some ways, is stronger than the previous slide in showing the, like, what you actually do. Yep, I agree. I agree. It's quite interesting, actually. Uh, I, I have a lot more questions that now come from this, and I think if a slide creates a lot of questions for the investors, I think that's a positive outcome. That's that's actually a very good, very good lens for people to ask when they're reading through these decks is, like, will this slide generate questions? Because you want to obviously answer stuff, but yeah. you want people to be excited and ask questions yeah. as a result of it, um, more so than just kind of, you know, have people read through and be like, yeah, no shit, no shit. Exactly, no shit, yeah. No shit, yeah. Okay, traction, slide nine. I mean, look, you know, whether or not you put traction at the start or the end, I don't mind. Mm. Um, 200 customers, cool. I'm kind of like, okay, like, are you impressed? Are you that. impressed by this or are you not impressed by that? I mean, 200 customers at 2K monthly revenue doesn't sound like they're, they're charging very much for something that, you know, either it's not that valuable to people or they're sort of only going to the consumer piece and, you know, it's 10 bucks a month and people spend 10 bucks a month on lots of things. Mm. Um, and again, like, you know, that, that's the market for Blinkist and things like that is, you know, mm. 10, 20. 20 bucks a month kind of space. Um, uh, again, I, I love the fact they've got revenue. I, I love that. I love that they've got customers. I love that too. Um, you know, I think the logos thing down the bottom used by execs from, I'm like, okay, so you're saying to me the customers are execs? Okay, that's interesting, right? But like you could narrow it down to me a little bit what, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of execs really look like. Partnerships with, I fucking hate that section. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I just don't think it matters. I don't, yeah, correct. Yeah. I don't think it matters. Um, B2B customers pipeline, again, interesting. 
yeah. okay, interesting. Like, yeah. what does this look like at a, at a you know broader licensing level? That is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, it's kind of intriguing. Would you know? I start thinking, would KPMG pay for all their consultants to have this because this is a great way to get research on the latest, you know, management consulting theory or whatever it might be that they can then sell into clients. Don't know. Yeah, I mean that that also asked me. I mean, I asked this question, you know, at, at a point here and, and to a degree earlier in the deck as well. Is like the curious question I was still, I'm still wondering in my mind here is how are they navigating the copyright challenges, knowing the Correct. complexities of how you know Elsevier and all of Elsevier, Elsevier, Elsevier and the textbook publishers and things, um, uh, sorry, the paper publishing conglomerates uh, protect their you know revenue source and everything else. Yes, right. yeah. um, how well they're going to be able to navigate that. And I'm sure Blinkist has obviously navigated that in terms of book summaries. Um, but, you know, how do you actually ensure that there is that right piece? Um, because I would hazard a guess that they're doing the uh, approach that I would be doing if I was a startup, which is quietly ignore that until I get sued. Uh, but hopefully at some point, um, hopefully at some point they actually have gotten legal advice um, before they get sued, knowing, knowing, what, knowing that they're going to need some advice. Yeah, definitely uh, asterisks there. Okay, our preliminary market strategy prioritizes professionals within the console. Okay, so they are selling okay, to consultants. This is, like, this is like saying, this is like saying, this is my beachhead, right? We yeah. like, we like. You can just say it's a beachhead market. Yeah. Preliminary market strategy prioritize. That's too many words. It is right? way too many words. Our beachhead market is professional consultants, right? You could also just say our go-to market is consultants. Yeah. Our, our first customers will be management consultants. Yeah. And 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 by the way, if it is that, I feel like everything else hasn't really been explaining towards this point like it's been very general yeah. everyday users all this type of stuff i i like to see a deck if your focus is this customer i want to know why this customer has this problem right and why it is so severe for them and you got to make me understand why it's the severity of it for well, i think why you understand this customer yeah. and i presume that this is because you know from the pwc logo back up in the team slide i presume this is because they were pwc consultants yeah. but we don't know that don't know that no. I, I think when I look at the TAM, I mean, you know, TAM calculation kind of things, I'm like 600 million. Yeah, that's probably what they spend. But like when you talk about research, like the, the money that consultants spend on research, that's not necessarily research in the sense of papers research. That's often in the sense of like, you know, paying market researchers or GLG or someone like that to go out and interview executives to understand markets. Like, you know, that, that's kind of a totally different spend category to research in terms of like academic papers. And I know that. Mm. Um and so if you said, oh, that, like, I can't believe for a second that KPMG spends $600 million a year in licensing academic papers. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. Absolutely that. not. We can categorically say that's not the case. Okay, market size slide. I, I mean... 58 I just billion? Go, this one, I just go, sure, great, you come up with a big-ish number. 58 billion doesn't seem like that big given that there's no real qualification as to how you got to that number. I think in these, the same thing with the previous slide, I, I rather see these things um, talking about how you've come to that number yeah. and kind of the different components that you have that make up that number than necessarily care about purely what the number is. Yeah, I agree with that part. Yeah, I, I, I kind of go 58 billion. I go, I raise my eyebrows and I kind of go, hmm, where did this come from? Magic air, yeah. I think, I suspect. <laughs> is this SOM? I, I assume this is SOM. Uh, I think it's TAM is my guess, but like the research summaries part, I'm like, oh, that's, that's why, a, why I that's think that's SOM. SOM. But then I'm like, you know, and for those that you don't know, SOM it's service, serviceable, obtainable market. So um, that's what that so means. How many people they think that actually win compared yeah, to just correct, the total market? Correct. And 58 billions are 
pretty big sum. That means your TAM's got to be even bigger than that. Yeah. And that's what I'm like. How do well, you... you're going to somehow have 99% of the, yeah, you know, correct. the market, which I don't think this is... No, I, I mean... I already asked the question. I think I already asked the question in my head here of like, is this a winner take all market? And I'm not sure the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Business. And that just changes. That's not a problem. It just changes the dynamics of how the company has to compete. Yeah. Okay. So business model, 30 bucks a month. Now that then, so this immediately makes me go 30 bucks a month. Hmm. Okay. But then you've just said you have $2,000 in monthly revenue from 200 customers, which is about $10 a month. So something in the math there is not right. So let it be known that I immediately did some math in my head there and was like, mm, where does that come from? Um, well, you are famous for detail in these things, so I'm not surprised. But yeah, if you give us numbers, we'll do the calculations and try to work it yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just like, I, I think that insofar as it's like you want to say in the previous slide, oh, you know, this is at the beta price of $10 a month. Yeah, that's probably blah, what's blah, happened. Blah. Sure, yeah. that's fine, yeah. right? But like, you know, I think you've got to say here, if you're saying we're charging $30 a month and it's you're actually charging 10 then really you're charging 10 with the intent to charge 30 Yeah. I bet the, the problem I not. have here is like, you just said it's consultants. I'm not too sure you should be putting B2C as your main business model here. Yeah. Because then you're really not selling a B2C. You're telling people that using a corporate card and so it's B2B. And so, I, I, I again, I think it's just a bit confused. All right. This is what I was waiting for. How on earth Competition are you slide. Yeah. Oh, GLG, look at that. Okay, so I mean, so I would firstly say they, they're not competing with GLG. Right? No. GLG goes out to go, like, yes, they do desk research as well, but like yeah. GLG goes out to go and like pay people a crap yeah. ton of money yeah. to interview them on a very, very niche subject and then mm. write you a report about what people say. Yeah. This, is, like, this is like saying, you know, ChatGPT is competing with market research firms. They're not. No. Of course they're not. No. You know, like, you're not going to be able to do market research with ChatGPT. Like, just doesn't, you know, you can use a generic questions, but like, it's not the business of ChatGPT. No. So, the GLG example, I'm a bit like, mm, you know, mm, not sure I really buy that one. Um, beyond, yes, okay, there's some desk research that they might do, but also like desk research is what you pay consultants to do. So yeah, and and, and yeah. you pay consultants for kind of like the, you know, the other, what are the insights that are not public? What are the things? Yeah. What are the things about yeah. the revenues of the these porous Chinese walls? Yeah, exactly. What are they? Yeah, yeah. For, well, I guess it's not PwC in this case, or you know, maybe tax yeah, advice. Well, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, let's not get into that one. Um, scholar, anyway, scholar so, so ignoring you, that column. Yeah, do you know scholar? I, I've never heard of scholars. Yeah, I've so heard give of me some either. more about what what they are. Yeah, I don't know what I don't they know. are. Um, I find it interesting that they're comparing Scholarly to ChatGPT mm. as if they're feature equivalent because they're obviously not, mm. right? Because ChatGPT is very, very Swiss Army knife could do anything. Uh, has its own limitations, obviously. And Scholarly, I assume, is more directly competitive to Outread, but based on their ticks and crosses table, they do the same thing. And I'm like, mm, not sure about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that part. Um, the audio part is also intriguing for me. Like, I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about why that's a, a moat, because what I'm trying to work out here is, is there a moat or are you just a wrapper around ChatGPT? And, and I, think, I think if you're just a wrapper, that's, that's fine. But where does your moat come in over time? Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is ChatGPT is getting personalization. It's going to be switched on soonish uh, rumors. And, well, of um, course. and it just makes a the lot of sense. Same thing with audio. Yeah, exactly. Well, audio has already come out as well. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But, you know, like, yeah. again, both of those things were safe to assume that we're going to be on the roadmap of ChatGPT exactly. slash OpenAI sooner or later. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. So, how are we different? Here we go. 
See, now... Uh, really? I don't know if I buy this. <laughs> I don't yeah, buy see. this. <laughs> but, I mean, this is a point of religion, I guess. So, like, you know, we can't say for certain that we're right and this slide is wrong. But I'm not sure that I agree that AI tools aim to replace intelligence. No. Like, I think particularly in the professional services sector, I think they'll improve efficiency. They'll, you know, shuffle away some of the work that is done and how it's allocated and how it's actually delivered. But I don't think it's going to like replace it no i mean sam said on stage we saw him I talk on the panel we saw him on the talk he literally said he doesn't you know he doesn't think the valuable use case is replacing jobs he thinks it's he's worried about i mean jobs, he, but yeah he thinks he does yeah i mean he, he's, his incentives are different but sure yeah i mean and i sort of also go which would you choose what enhancing intelligence or replacing it but i mean you're still using ai right? <laughs> you're, you're an ai tool also why einstein <laughs> yeah i saw this be a weird slide <laughs> all right okay, next slide next slide Okay, ask. I love an ask. 500k pre-seed. Nothing crazy. That's good. Great. Nothing crazy. Solid, clear. Yeah. Don't try and put a random valuation in front of me that no. you know you have come up with just because you saw some competitor in the news. Yeah. Um, I like the pie chart. Everyone loves a pie chart. Use of funds. Surprisingly, um, very few people use a pie chart. If you're listening and you're a founder, put a put a use of fund pie, pie chart. Nice just show us the, the the general makeup of what you're spending. We only care about the buckets. We don't yeah. really care about yeah. and, and the percentages. We don't care about the dollar values. No. Like the ones that put the dollar value don't too much work. Um, opex twenty percent. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Marketing and R and D half and half. That seems like that seems like a lot. You know. Yeah. Typically, we would see. Uh, you know. Typically, we would see startups spending more on that R and D development side. Yeah. And the early marketing and sales is a little bit more you know, sort of founder-driven and everything else yeah. than necessarily spending, you know, 40% of your raise on marketing at a 500k raise. Correct. So I'd say the balance seems a little bit weird. So I'd, and in that context, I would say, okay, what, what, you know, how have you sort of budgeted out that 40%? What does that look like? You know, right. is that because there's a couple of key conferences they're attending that are actually quite expensive? And so that's, you know, where it's coming from um, to really understand that piece of how they're thinking about what this use of funds pie chart ends up looking like. Yeah. I, I, but a good slide, nice and clear. Yeah, I agree. It's nice and clear. I would say for a lot of pre-seed companies, I expect you to be putting most of your money into R&D. So mostly your product engineering team, right? And I, I think when you do have half, nearly half of it going into marketing, I want to know why you're so well, marketing. The product's, going to, be, the product's going to be very much ready for market. Yeah. If you're putting half of your raise into marketing, yeah. the product's going to be bloody ready for market. Yeah. And I just don't think that's the case in this situation. But maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe it is. And they've got early customers. They've got early customers. They've got early revenue. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, and I think that's it, right? That's the last slide. We're connecting science and yeah, so I, don't, I don't, mm. don't know if I love that. Don't know if I love this as the vision slide. No. Well, I, a pro tip though, uh, if you are going to put through a lot of like marketing phraseology and taglines, have one tagline, make sure it hits mm. and repeat it multiple times. Like just, you know, and if it is like the vision tag or it's like we want to be at a million customers in one year, Hypothet- you know, something like that, say that three or four times because that's the thing you want the investors to take away with. I think this is a bit too broad. I think this is a little bit too iffy-wiffy and not that interesting t- yeah. tagline for me. But yeah. All right. Well, that that's that's outread. Uh, as I said, we've been following them for a while. So we're going to actually, I'm going to do another update call with them, I believe, next week, which is good, which I'm excited for. But Hugh, what would you rank this deck out of 10? Oh, I don't know. I didn't like. I, I mean, I don't. I don't. What do I normally rate decks? Uh, I don't know. You've been pretty generous. I, I think this was probably typical. Yeah. This is typical for what we probably see. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I think again, you know, as I always say about these things, you know, a big part of the job of a VC is being able to tell the difference between a really great business that just isn't pitched that well and a really awful business that is pitched really well, right? And in some ways, you really want to avoid bucket two. 
Um, that's that's there's nothing worse than awful businesses that are pitched really well. Yep. Um, and so I think you know the the fact that I'm saying it's not a great deck doesn't mean it's not a great company. Um, because I think it's quite common, particularly in the early stage, for these things to look like this and kind of be a bit confusing and not really maybe understand how VCs are, you know, reading and thinking about things as you go through a deck. And that's why we're doing these calls. That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that was helpful um, for the founders and for everyone else on the call. Uh, thanks very much to Outread for sharing us your deck. And we're looking forward to chatting with you soon. Awesome. All right. Thanks, team. So moving on from. A roast by deck. Uh, I've decided that for this episode, uh, we will not be going through a founder question. We will, in fact, be pushing that to the next episode, which is good. We're going to follow up with very quickly because it's been a few months since we've published episode the last uh, podcast episode. So, in the next episode, we will be talking about how to deal with valuation differences between Australia and the USA as a founder. I think it's a really important topic. We have lots to say. I can see your notes here, Hugh. You have lots to say as well. So it will be lots of... There are of... Many, many things I can say about this topic. <laughs> so it will be a juicy topic. So make sure to tune in for the next one. Um, as for then, thank you for listening to this episode of Galileo Venture Podcast with myself and Hugh. Please subscribe on YouTube, Apple or Spotify and give us a review so that others can find us. Till next time, thanks very much.